you have your Bibles, you can join me in, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, <clears throat> beginning in verse 13. Mark, chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, or if you don't have your Bible, uh, there's some handouts by the door. It has those scripture verses on there for you, so you can follow along with us. For our introduction to our series, which is titled, Misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. A college senior took his new girlfriend to a football game, and they made their way into the stadium, up all of the stairs it takes to get to your appropriate seats, and and they made their way down the steps, all the way down to where their seats were in view of the field. Pretty good view, because you know seniors get priority in the student section, so they had a nice view. And So the young couple found their seats in the crowded stadium, they're watching the action and the warm-up of the players, and... uh, they're watching the, the running backs over off to the right. They take turns practicing their handoffs and getting stretched out and getting ready for the big game. A couple of them are running around the field, and the boy looked over to his girlfriend, got her attention, said, I want you to take a look at that guy right there. <clears throat> I have no doubt that next year he's going to be our best man. And the girl snuggled up a little bit closer. And to the surprise of her new boyfriend said, I really expected you to get on one knee, but yes, yes, I accept. (laughs) You might say, uh, in this situation, there's been a misunderstanding. He, of course, did not mean that the backup running back this year was going to be their best man next year, in case you missed that. He meant the best player, the best player on the team, best player. He wasn't proposing. She thought he was. It can happen easy, can it? Words can be misconstrued or miscalculated or misheard. Or even if you say the right thing, sometimes somebody hears the wrong things or assumes they knew what you were talking about already. It reminds me of the woman who was uh, ordering her chicken takeout from the local restaurant. And she told the cashier what she wanted and he said hang on I got to go check first and went back to the back and he comes back with a look of confusion on his face he says I don't think we can help you today she's baffled she's ordered and the man comes out and tells her at the restaurant we can't serve you food she thought that's what they're there for isn't it she said why not I just want to order some chicken he said you said you wanted to know how much chicken you should order for 300 people we just can't help you with that today there's no way our cooks can keep up to what she said Gladly. No, 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 no. I said, how much chicken should I order for three hungry people? <laughs> Sometimes even when you say the right things, somebody hears the wrong things. Somebody, something completely different. Uh, an entire misunderstanding. Just one word is all it takes. So if one word or one misheard word can create that much misunderstanding that quickly, maybe we ought to have... Uh, a little bit of sympathy for Jesus' first disciples who are trying to figure out what it means that their new teacher, the one to whom they've pledged their life and have begun to follow, considers himself to be God's son. And much more than that, that in addition to going around claiming that he's God's son and performing miracles like they've never seen before and multiplying food right in front of them, which he did just minutes ago in this gospel. 
he is also explaining to them that he is the fulfillment of all of the hopes of all of their people, of, of all of their nation. And at the same time, in the passages ahead of us in this series, he's explaining to them that because of all of that, he has to die. That he has to undergo suffering. And that after suffering, he'll come back again. If, if just one word, misheard or misspoken, can create misunderstanding so quickly, you can understand why all of this would lead the disciples in the middle of Mark's gospel to misunderstand Jesus, at least a little bit. Misunderstanding is one of the great themes of Mark's gospel. In fact, one way to point out this theme in Mark is that if you read closely up to chapter 8, where we're going to begin in this series, read the first half of the gospel, what we sometimes call Jesus' Galilean ministry, read it and ask, who realizes, who is it that realizes that Jesus is the Son of God? The answer might be a bit of a surprise. Obviously, God knows. We can start there. That's always a safe assumption. God knows that Jesus is his son. He proves it, declares it so in Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, right at the beginning of the gospel. And since his declaration goes straight into Jesus' ears, we know Jesus knew. You are my beloved son. And since the declaration comes directly to Jesus, Jesus knows. And so the reader can assume that the reader knows it as well. So maybe Mark knows it as he's writing it. We know it as we're reading it. And as we read it, God and and Jesus seem to know it. But is there anybody else? Well, the evil demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. On several instances, they scream it as they encounter him. Okay, so God and Jesus, a few demons on occasion. But who else? Only two other people, other than God and Jesus and the demons, that open Mark's gospel, no. That's you, the one who reads it, and Mark, the one who writes it. See, throughout the first half of this gospel, nobody else seems to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, much less what this means. Only the reader and the author are in on the secret at this point. In Mark 3, his friends say that he's crazy, Others say he's possessed. In Mark 4, Jesus is a misunderstood Messiah, is a major theme. In Mark 6, his own people say, isn't he a carpenter? Isn't he Joseph's son? And if the crowd's reaction and his hometown response weren't enough, not even the disciples, those nearest to him, truly understand. In the storm at the sea, they prove that. Because they get desperate and aggravated by Jesus' inactivity. And after he rebukes the waves, they they express disbelief and fear. Who is this? Who is this man, they say, that even the wind and the waves obey him? They can't figure it out. They just marvel in terror. And then not much later, when they come upon a, a woman who's had a life long of bleeding, Jesus performs a healing. She asks, uh, he asks, who touched my garments? The disciples have no idea why he would ask that, that, that power could come out from contact, that go out from him. And then before the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are completely oblivious to the fact that Jesus might be able to provide miraculously from that which they have. 
And then before the second miraculous feeding of the multitude, at the beginning of this chapter 8, the disciples declare with a kind of extreme irony, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? When we read that, we're in on the secret. We want to say, he can, this guy, the one who just did that same thing. And the disciples misunderstand again and again. All the way up to this little section in the middle of Mark's gospel. It's the conclusion of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's a section that over the next couple of weeks we'll look at together, beginning at the end here of Mark chapter 8. Jesus' Galilean ministry ends and he starts a new section where we realize that the disciples have misunderstood and he tries to help them see more clearly. It's bookended on each end, actually, by Jesus' healing of two different blind men. One at the beginning and one at the end. And in between, at least three times, Jesus very clearly predicts his own suffering and death, trying to help these disciples understand who he truly is. Because unless you understand who he is, how can you understand what it means to follow him? Unless we understand the Messiah, how can we understand what it means to be a disciple? Not too long ago, I was watching a basketball game. It was the, the Houston Rockets a team I follow closely, and they were playing out of town. They were in uh, Washington, I think it was. So the on-air announcer's name was Glenn Conzer. And uh, he was doing, of course, what he's paid to do in an NBA game. He's giving kind of off-the-cuff commentary to the events as they unfolded. And you can, again, you can have some sympathy for a guy who has to say a lot of words really fast about what's happening. The fact that one could make a mistake is understandable. And he has to do it on live television. Well, it was the end of the game, uh, and you couldn't make up the, the ending. It went viral right away. And the Washington Wizards are playing the Houston Rockets. The end of the game comes around, and uh, at the time, this is a, a little over a year ago, Kevin Porter Jr., you wouldn't know his name, but... He was a professional, uh, still is a professional basketball player. The end of the game came down to the wire. The Rockets hit the ball one last time, and Kevin Porter Jr. catches the ball and launches a three-pointer, wins the game. The crowd goes wild, and in the shock of the moment, Conzer said the following. He said, you've got to give credit. Kevin Porter Jr., like his dad, pulled that trigger right at the right time. Now, he referenced his father. Of course, the announcer, it became clear after the game, clearly thought that Kevin Porter Jr. was the biological son of also NBA star Kevin Porter, who had played some years before in the NBA. Assumed in his statement is he shot that ball just like his dad. Of course, he said he pulled the trigger just like his dad at just the right time. What the announcer didn't know was that Kevin Porter Jr. is no relation to Kevin Porter, the other NBA player. In fact, his father pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter in the shooting death of a 14-year-old in 1993. Uh, it seems there's been a misunderstanding. Now, neither of them made light of the situation, and, and to his credit, a quick apology made, uh, made amends pretty quickly. But you can see how if you misunderstand who the person is, you can misunderstand the whole frame of reference for their life, 
for that moment, for its meaning and significance. And suddenly words meant to simply to say, you play basketball great, just like your dad did, suddenly have a different ring to them and, and even sound like a derogatory jab at your father's past mistakes. The disciples listened to Jesus speak all kinds of words. And we're quick to say along the way, don't they get it by now? Don't they understand? And there's so much about who Jesus is that they've got right. In the context of the game, they know he's a player. They know he's important. They know he ought to be taking the final shot. But they have not fully understood where he fits and God's design for the world and God's plan for his and their future. And until they fully understand, they'll never be able to be disciples in the way Jesus intends. And so he begins in Mark chapter 8 to try and correct some of their misunderstanding. Jesus has just fed the, uh, just fed the 4,000 in chapter 8. He's displayed some miracles And the disciples are fresh off of two of the most miraculous and inspired meetings of all time. The Pharisees start to question Jesus. And that's when, uh, in verse 13, we're told of chapter 8, that Jesus leaves them, being the Pharisees and the crowd and all those who were questioning him. And again, embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. This is Jesus and the disciples. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Reading along in the Gospels by this point, eight chapters in, you would think the answer would immediately be by those closest to Jesus, of course we get it. Of course we've caught on by now. But they don't. In fact, Jesus says, uh, begins to warn them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That is the, uh, the little poison that only takes a little bit to ruin the whole batch. Uh, the Pharisees and Herod had been questioning his authority and his purpose. And he's saying, if that starts to creep into your life, you'll be spoiled too. Beware of what's going on here. But They don't hear that. In fact, they still think Jesus is talking about actual food. It's one of the more comical notes in all of the Gospels that they have one loaf of bread with them. Jesus says, be careful about the most important things in life. And they say, I think he's talking about what we're going to eat for lunch. It's anything but what they're going to eat for lunch. And Jesus would be reasonable to reprimand them for being so bad at understanding. In fact, He'd be reasonable to reprimand them for being so bad at making, uh, pr- uh, making uh, arrangements, provisions for their travel. You would think by now, he's already fed thousands and then thousands again. This time you think they might pack a sack lunch 
Uh, if this keeps happening, maybe you ought to bring some food with you. But nope, just one loaf. So they're bad at understanding and they're bad at logistics. But that isn't Jesus' concern. He doesn't get on them for being uh, bad at having a meal calendar or signing up for donuts that day or being the one who didn't bring them in the Sunday school class getting upset. <laughs> Jesus criticizes them not for any of those errors, but for obsessing over such a trivial physical issue while failing to perceive these big and true spiritual realities that he's trying to teach them about. They think they only have one loaf with them and it will never be enough. And in reality, they have the bread of life with them and they're less concerned about receiving the nourishment he could offer in that moment or any moment. Their stomachs have distracted them. Their eyes are deceived. This isn't another feeding miracle. Jesus doesn't take the one loaf on the boat and multiply it into 12 so that every disciple gets a loaf. He just uses the topic to point their attention back to what is most pressing. It was common in the Old Testament and Judaism for leaven to be a symbol of of sin or evil. Only a small amount is necessary to leaven a loaf of bread. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus likens leaven to the kingdom of God, that that a little bit of it can affect the whole dough. But in this case, it's a negative thing. In the background is the command of the Jews in the Exodus to remove all the leaven from their homes and to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Maybe you remember that story. And here he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of of Herod. Now Luke talks only of the Pharisees and and clarifies by saying that it's their hypocrisy that's the big problem. And Matthew replaces Herod with the Sadducees. He says it's the leaven of their teaching that they should watch out for. But for Mark, we hear these words echo right after their demand for a sign. And the frustration is growing in Jesus and in the text about their unbelief, their misunderstanding. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that their persistent opposition from Herod and the Pharisees to Jesus and his mission keeps on ruining everything. And while having almost nothing in common, both Herod and the Pharisees view Jesus as a threat to their authority, to their influence, to their way of life, And Jesus asks them, warns them, don't be like them. Do you not yet understand? It's pride, it's selfish ambition, it's blindness to what Jesus is really about. It's uh, Really, he's warning them, don't try to attach a little bit of what I'm doing to a lot of what you're doing and expect to come out okay on the other side. And a text like this can seem a far way from our context, from our culture. But if we stop long enough to ask ourselves where we've misunderstood Jesus, we'll find just as many examples as Herod, the Pharisees, and the disciples of places where we've tried to take who we'd like Jesus to be and bring him into our plans or our life or our vision for life. But Jesus warns the disciples not to do this. Don't be clueless. This generation, he says, And as I read a text like this, I can't help but ask, is is this generation, our generation, led astray by another vision for life? Have you ever been distracted by other causes or priorities or uh, aims happening around you? 
In verse 17, Jesus' response is a series of rhetorical questions. He keeps asking them, what did I do for you? What did I do for you? Don't you remember? He's pointing out that they're acting like outsiders. Their response throughout most of Mark's gospel reflects the crowd instead of being reflective of true disciples. Maybe they're succumbing to the leaven of the Pharisees. It's not just a way of saying, I can't believe how blind you are that you can't see. It's a way of saying, you're in danger of going the same way that the Israelites did in Jeremiah's day. And what was the problem in those days of that generation? Well, people were caught up in their own concerns. They were unconcerned with injustice and wickedness in the world, that God had no alternative but to abandon them to their fate at the hands of foreigners. He's saying, don't be like they were. If they effectively worship other gods, those other gods and all those who worship them will have power over them. And that lies at the heart of Jesus' warnings. The bread they should have been fixated on was not their present provisions or their immediate needs or what they can do for themselves. They should have been stuck, so stuck on the two miracles of multiplication they just witnessed the ones that Jesus rehearses for them, if they'd have been reminded of those spiritual miracles that they had seen, they might have had their eyes opened to who Jesus was. And they know the numbers, by the way. Jesus asks these rhetorical questions, and the disciples, of course, answer them uh, like they should get an A-plus for remembering how many baskets they collected after the miracle. They hadn't forgotten, but not one of those numbers have led to faith. You can imagine them answering as their their heads droop down, realizing how senseless it was to quarrel about the one loaf of bread they have in the boat when the great provider, the the twelve-basket guy, the seven-basket guy, is still with them. And yet they continue to be astounded by Jesus' power. They had seen something so extraordinary and had yet to realize Jesus' unique authority and his role in God's plan of salvation for the world. Do you not yet understand, Jesus asks? Twice, actually, he asks in this. Have you not perceived or or understood? And if we're beginning to understand what what Jesus' mission was all about and, and to make it the foundation of our faith and hope, the question is, do we understand what he's doing right now? It's, of course, easy to open the Gospels and ask, why can't the disciples see the work that Jesus is up to? The harder question is to ask, have we seen what he's doing today? And what would make Jesus groan deeply today like he does in this text? What is it about us that makes Jesus say, you still don't get it? You still haven't let me into that part of your life? You still haven't joined me in making this right? You still haven't become a part of my plan? Do you not yet understand that the loaf of bread that you're worried about in the boat is the least of your worries? We might be quick to answer, yes, I do understand. There was a day I I prayed that prayer, or or there was a moment where I, I heard a sermon that opened my eyes. I suspect some of the 12 were quick to answer yes also. Yes, we do understand now. But one of these disciples will betray him. Another will deny him. And the rest will all flee 
when what he predicts three times in a moment comes out to be true. And if that could happen to them, I'd be foolish not to realize that there are certainly things about the Son of God that my life has not yet fully understood. My life proves it again and again. Each time I stray from God's ways in my life, each time my priorities take precedent over His, each time sin creeps into our hearts and our lives and our relationships, we prove again we have not understood. So we need to hear it again. We need to open our lives to be examined again, to discover where and how it is that we've misunderstood what the Messiah might be up to in Mark's gospel, and in my life. And that's our invitation in the series and in the passages we'll look at in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. To hear Jesus predict his own suffering, to describe for the disciples who the Messiah truly is, and to invite that Messiah to change our lives. Maybe you need to invite somebody else to come and understand better with you again. Let's pray. Father, your word always cuts to the heart, always corrects, always teaches, always helps. And we pray, Father, that as we hear your word proclaimed, as we open your word and apply it to our lives, that you would teach us again, perhaps anew, perhaps for the thousandth time, what it means to make the suffering Messiah our Lord each day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.